This episode is brought to you by Audi Canada. The Canadian Medical Association has partnered with Audi Canada to offer CMA members preferred incentive on select vehicle models. Purchase any new qualifying Audi model and receive an additional cash incentive based on the purchase type. Details of the incentive program can be found at audiprofessional.ca. Explore the full line of vehicles available to suit your lifestyle. The Audi driving experience is like no other. To shingles, age isn't just a number. Do you have patients 50 or older? They're at higher risk of getting shingles. Don't wait. Talk about Shingrix with your patients over 50 today. Shingrix is indicated for the prevention of herpes zoster, HZ, or shingles in adults 50 years of age or older. Consult a product monograph at gsk.ca slash shingrix slash pm for contraindications, warnings, and precautions, adverse reactions, interactions, dosing, and administration information. To request a product monograph or to report an adverse event, please call 1-800-387-7374. Learn more at thinkshingrix.ca. Medicine has an inequity problem, especially at the senior leadership level. The factors and causes are complex, although well-documented. Despite our understanding of the size of the problem, actually getting to gender equity is tricky, although it's important, not least, so that we can optimize creative problem-solving of complex problems in the health system. I'm Dr. Kirsten Patrick, Executive Editor for the Canadian Medical Association Journal, Today, I'm talking to Professor Andrea Trico and Dr. Ainsley Moore, two of the authors of an analysis article, who outlined practical ways of advancing gender equity in medicine. The article is published in CMAJ. I've reached Andrea in Toronto and Ainsley in Hamilton. Welcome to CMAJ Podcasts. Hi, thank you so much for having us. It's a real pleasure to be here today. Hi, I'm Ainsley, and it's, it's a pleasure to be here. It really is an honor and privilege to share with you today and your listeners. So I'd like to start off with each of you telling our listeners a little bit about who you are. Andrea? My name is Andrea Trico, and I'm a scientist at St. Michael's Hospital at Unity Health Toronto. I'm also an associate professor in the Dalana School of Public Health at the University of Toronto, and I've been conducting research within the gender equity realm for the last couple of years. And Ainsley. Hi, I'm Ainsley. I'm a family doc. I'm on uh, faculty with the Department of Family Medicine as an associate clinical professor in medicine at McMaster University. Um, I also serve as vice chair to the Canadian Task Force on Preventive Healthcare, and I am passionate about uh, women's health, uh, reproductive health, and uh, reproductive um, health rights. It's great to have you with us today. So let's go ahead with uh, deconstructing this article for our listeners. Andrea, there have been other recent articles calling out the problem of gender inequity in medicine. Can you explain what your goal was in writing this particular article? Yes, absolutely. Um, So before I begin describing that, I do want to mention that gender is a multifaceted concept. And usually when we think about gender traditionally, it has been more from a binary perspective. So we usually think of it as male and female. Um, And most of the research is focused on the the binary division for gender. However, we want to note that gender is not binary. um, And so it's actually a continuum. So so just to note that um, something important for us to keep in mind when we're reading the article in that we're talking about the research and and it is very focused on male versus female. However, when in real life, gender is is actually uh, not binary. 
In terms of the goal for the papers, so basically what we wanted to do is we wanted to summarize some of the excellent research that has been conducted on gender inequity within medicine. And the, the focus that we wanted was to focus on the solutions because we wanted to share these solutions with those working in the field. So we wanted to bring a bit more attention to the issue. Um, however, putting a real appreciative lens on it and, and really focusing on what can we do now. I think it's always a lot easier to describe the size of a problem than to think about how do we solve this problem. So I think this article is great from that point of view. It gives lots of practical ideas of um, what we should actually be doing to solve the problem. Ainsley, what is the scale of gender inequity at the leadership level in medicine? Yeah, it is easier to think about scale and size than to get at the nuts and bolts. Um, so, but thinking about the scale or the scope of the problem, you can think about how entrenched a problem is, how far back, what the historical roots are, and you can look at how how wide spread or what the breadth of of a problem is. Looking back historically, you know we know that that women have outnumbered men in Canadian medical schools for well over a quarter of a century now. But as as you mentioned, Kirsten, our, our Canadian studies consistently identify these gaps in, in uh, medical leadership, not only in research uh, medical leadership, but also in clinical leadership and, and medical education. And a really good example of the scale, when you look at the last um, 150 years of the Canadian Medical Association, there have only been eight women um, presidents out of 152. So that's just kind of a, a snapshot picture of the, of the, the, the history of the depth. But if you look at medical education, it's even more entrenched, resistant uh, to change. So look at the upper levels of medical education training. The, the first woman dean uh, of a faculty of medicine, it took 117 years to get there, and, and it didn't occur until 1999. Since then, there have only been a total of eight out of 152 deans. And that's, think about when medical schools were established in Canada so that's over 170 years ago. There have only been eight um, to date so far. There's, there's other metrics, though. If you look at these, these metrics that are key to achieving leadership success, so in thinking about the problem that way, there's, there's a, a really interesting study from 2018 that looked at um, presenters at medical ground rounds in, in two Canadian um, cities institutions. Um, Toronto Calgary. And, and what they found was that there were substantially fewer women presenters at these medical ground rounds, well below what you'd expect, well below that proportion that I talked about of female med students and residents in the programs. And so the, the, the challenge here, the, the problem here is that medical ground rounds, as we know, there are, there are opportunities. You showcase your research, you present your expertise, and you're, you identify yourself as a resource. Those metrics are key because they're important outlets for, for recognition. They're the materials that we use, the measures that we use as, as we submit our applications to go forward for tenure and promotion. But the other problem is, you know, grand rounds are their, their opportunities for role modeling and, and for connecting to others. So, so that's an important gap. The other, like, critical gap that's, that's connected to leadership success relates to a national research funding competition. So, this happens at both the scientist level as, as well as the project level. There's, there's, again, a big gender gap in terms of uh, who is successful with those grants. And, of course, that feeds the whole, the whole machinery, grants, publications, uh, supervisees, 
strength of your CV and your application to move forward in the Senate with with uh, with tenure. I mean, those are some pictures or glimpses of the scale of the problem. We know there's uh, gender gaps in in pay in Canadian medicine, but that's not specifically you know identifying leadership gaps, although they are connected. That's great to have those snapshots because what you're saying is this is not a minority problem. This is a problem where women are now equally represented within the whole medical workforce. They're just not rising to the levels of leadership on the whole that men are. Um, Andrea, in the article, you talk about the importance of considering the intersection of gender and race when evaluating inequity. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yes, absolutely. So um, what um, researchers have found is that focusing on gender is not enough. So we have to go beyond gender and we have to actually consider all facets of people's lived experiences. And in order for us to do this, um, we have to, to look at all the factors that one would go through um, in their lives. And, and this is helpful because it can help us to understand the root of the problem and for us to identify potential solutions. Um, so, so in particular, we do need to think about and focus on the intersection with the systems of power and privilege and oppression. These need to be considered. So in any research relationship or within any organization, we have these uh, informal and sometimes formalized systems of power, as well as privilege and oppression. And until we fully understand this and understand what goes on you know, within relationships and within organizations, we can't bring about change. Um, so, so consistently within research, we, we found that inequities are further increased when gender intersects with other factors. And a good example is race, is because if we think about race, racialized women as an ex example, they experience challenges in an, actually in an exaggerated way. And this has actually been termed a double jeopardy of race and gender bias. So unfortunately, um, when we have gender combined with other factors, it actually exacerbates the problem. So until we understand the intersectionality and understand all these factors very, very well, we won't be able to get to those uh, solutions that, that we really need to move things forward. Um, so one example would be the systemic and structural issues of racism. And this would actually contribute to a racialized woman who would experience more significant poverty as a child, as well as an adult. And they would experience more financial hardships or the death of a spouse, as well as looking after aged parents. So again, when we see genders intersecting with other factors, it just exacerbates everything. And um, we won't be able to fully understand this until we look at the whole entire picture. So we need the context in order for us to, to, to move forward. Um, unfortunately, the issue is that we often don't collect intersectionality data or we don't collect it very well. Um, so, so that's a problem in the primary studies. So when we look at the medical literature, not only is it being collected in the primary studies, um, but then if we're trying to synthesize it, so I do a lot of work within knowledge synthesis as an example. So if I wanna do a systematic review, it's very challenging for me to look at intersectionality even though I would like to, because it's never been fully reported in the primary studies. Um, and so not only with that, we, we don't collect or report on this data um, within our organizations. So we don't know the extent of the problem, um, me meaning that we can't really address it. 
So until we realize the importance of this and until we are committed to collecting data on this, we really won't be able to get to those solutions that we we desperately need within medicine. So it seems to me that um, you're saying that even though I was saying, oh, it's easier to outline the size of a problem than it is to outline the solutions. It's actually not always easy to really get at the size of the problem because the problem's complex and we don't collect the right data to be able to sketch it out. It also sounds like you're saying that um, that we need to look at this in a, in a kind of an individual way. So it's not a one size fits all solution to getting to equity in medicine. It's more like we need to understand the particular challenges or hurdles or whatever that individual women face and, um, and help them to overcome those. Ainsley, where do you think the problem starts with gender inequity? Um, what contributes to this gender inequity in, in leadership roles beyond what you've already highlighted? So probably it's going to help to just go back for a minute and think about um, gender norms and clarify, um, clarify that concept. So gender norms are society's expectations, assumptions about how men, women, boys, girls behave. And it, 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 you know, there are assumptions about all aspects of life, how we communicate, dress, what roles we take on, um, what we're expected to take on. And it defines dynamics within relationships. And, and so these, these determine life trajectories. They determine employment opportunities, advancements, et cetera. And so um, thinking about where it starts, that's, that's a good place to sort of recognize that. But another main um, recognition that's, that's key to figuring out where this starts is to think about gender equity as a fundamental human right. Um, and, and gender equity is really a process. Gender equity gets you to the outcome. It gets you to gender equality. And that's equal treatment in, in all aspects of society with, without discrimination. Um, so where does it start? It starts early. It starts in childhood and all the influences that, um, that we're exposed to in our lives. But it becomes exacerbated as we move forward. Um, and certainly we see that in medicine. The systems supported by uh, gender norms perpetuate and continue differentials, gaps in, in uh, gender and leadership. Um, so it starts in society, but it's perpetuated by our systems and our structures. And these are, these are the systems and structures that are in place in medical education, medical practice, as well as academia. The higher you go up in the leadership ladder, the greater the inequity becomes. There's only 24% of full professors in medicine are, are women. Andrea mentioned um, how gender intersects with race and culture that further exacerbates um, those challenges higher up. The systems are in place and, and they reward metrics that just don't favor the, the capacity or that don't favor currently women in, in positions um, trying to get to, to higher levels of leadership. We know that women face disproportionate exposure to disruptive behaviors and harassment, and those serve to entrench existing power structures. It's, it's pretty challenging to come forward um, with concerns. It's easier to put your head down and just keep going. And it's easier to not expose yourself to more risks as you as you advance in in your career. And so there's there's another level of this. Like we've 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 understood exposure to macro level disruptive behaviors and and the impact they have. But there's a new fledgling area that's looking at um, microaggressions, and these are interpersonal or private level interactions that really reflect sort of micro invalidations 
micro insults. Um, they're, they're indirect, they're more subtle, um, but they're expressions of judgment and, and prejudice and, and they're, they're different, they're constant, they're, they're insidious, and they, they have an impact on whittling away in ter- you know, self-esteem um, and, and they can serve to limit um, women's interest in, in being hired or um, going forward for promotion as well as um, confidence in going forward. And it's the way, I mean, it's the way the system values work, care. If you look at the gender pay gap, the, the specialties that um, women tend to dominate, like psychiatry, these pediatrics and family medicine, those are at the lowest end of the uh, net income scale. And, and male-dominated uh, specialties like cardiology, uh, diagnostic radiology, ophthalmology, they are disproportionately much, much higher um, income generating uh, specialties. So, you know, it's how the system rewards work. There's a lot of factors. I'm just hitting on the, the high level ones that are impactful and, and easily communicated. You're talking about um, things that that are set up at the system level that kind of impede women's progress in medicine. And so it strikes me that the way that we work towards gender equity will be about dismantling some of those structures or changing them. Um, Andrea, what are some of the ideas that you've put forward in the article that you'd like to highlight for listeners about how we actually practically get to gender equity in medicine? Yes, completely agree. And and it is not about um, women leaning in, um, as you're alluding to, um, as well as what uh, just repeating what Ainsley mentioned that, you know, this this issue is very at the very highest level in all levels. And, and definitely we need structural changes to occur. So so we're not asking women to lean in here. It's more about breaking down structural and cultural barriers and men need to be involved. So actually everyone needs to be involved. Society needs to be involved for us to actually see some of these changes. So as we mentioned earlier today, we need solutions that are contextualized to multiple levels. So we, we need to think about the organizational level. We need to think about the team level. We need to think about the individual level. Um, so, so in order for us to see the gains and the changes, it's really a focus on holistic and multifaceted solution at all levels of medical organizations. So as you as you mentioned, we, we did bring up many, many different interventions in the the article and potential solutions. And we're not saying that one approach is better than the other. We feel that a range and multifaceted and holistic approach would be best. So beginning with thinking about the quantification of the problem. So unfortunately, as we said, sometimes we may know information on gender, but Oftentimes it's just binary, it's not all the genders. And also oftentimes we don't have any other additional intersectionality data. So we don't have the intersection of gender and other factors as we mentioned previously, such as indigeneity as well as race um, as big examples. So we need to have an idea of what the problem actually is. And unfortunately this hasn't been a real focus until recently. Uh, and we just don't have the data. So it's hard for us to make a very contextualized solution when we don't know the extent of the problem. So um, we're, we're suggesting that we have annual reporting at a very 
basic minimum on gender as well as intersectionality. And, and this is a good start because it can help to increase the awareness of the issue. However, that is not sufficient on its own. And unfortunately, when you look at the literature, most of the interventions that have been researched or studied have focused on increasing awareness. And so increasing awareness is actually not enough. It's just the tip of the iceberg. So we need to go much, much deeper. So we need to think about things such as uh, career flexibility. So thinking through non-gendered parental leave schemes as an example, how do we increase the visibility, recognition and representation? Um, so building off of some of the issues that Ainsley was mentioning previously. So how, how can we provide all genders with opportunities for presenting at medical grand rounds as an example? How can we give them opportunities to speak with the media, right? So we're seeing during COVID, I'm seeing a lot of my male colleagues in the media and I'm seeing a lot less of my female colleagues as an example. How do we highlight the achievements of everyone? How do we provide opportunities for everyone? Um, also thinking through about opportunities for mentorship and sponsorship. So thinking about formal programs where we link up mentors with mentees. So this is something that my institute has been thinking of and, and been working on in the last couple of years as an example, because having a mentor is so important within academic medicine and within medicine. So, so having a mentor will help. And how do we make sure that we have equal opportunities for all genders to have supportive mentorship, as well as sponsorship, which, which goes beyond mentorship, and it, it really is important. Um, other examples would be something like financial support. So um, there are some national funding bodies internationally that have come up with these lotteries. So instead of doing the whole peer review process, they actually run a lottery. And so you are randomly assigned to whether your grant is successful or not. Um, so, so this is a way because as Ainsley alluded to as well before with our Canadian Institutes of Health Research, we, we've looked at the grants and researchers have found that there is some gender bias in the, the scientists that are funding as well as at the, the project level. So when we do this kind of lottery, what happens is it, the attempt or the focus is to try to reduce this potential for gender bias that, that may occur. And hopefully we're moving towards more behavioral and systemic changes. So thinking about role modeling equity principles by leaders of all of our organizations, seeing more different diverse leaders there that can be role models, um, having diversity in our hiring panels. So making sure that not only is everyone aware of uh, the, the processes and aware of the potential biases that can happen when we're selecting candidates for our organizations, but making sure that our panel themselves are diverse so that people can relate and feel welcome and feel safe. And also so that we are able to hire diverse candidates. Oftentimes when they've done research into this, they find that like tend to hire like, right? So I, I hire um, this person because I, I can relate to them and I see myself in them. So it's very important for us to make sure that we have hiring panels that are diverse. One example that I did want to highlight today is the Athena Scientific Women's Academic Network or the SWAN, Athena SWAN Initiative. And this one is very multifaceted and they include, include several different interventions. So some, some of the examples would be things like monitoring and looking at um, different statistics and, and looking at the issues over time 
career transition planning. They also have items related to flexible working. Um, and there's also a, a big focus on organizational and cultural changes. Um, so the Athena Swan Initiative is something that has actually gained great popularity around the world and, and um, was being worked on in here in Canada as well. And when they have evaluated, it has found um, some good outcomes such as increased satisfaction of um, different genders and in particular women. This is focused on a, a women's initiative. Uh, so it has been shown to increase satisfaction, which is great. However, one limitation that has been found with Athena Swan is that the, the people who tend to be the main beneficiaries of this program are white and middle-class women. So, so we believe that the Athena Swan Initiative is fantastic and, and it definitely is bringing us further along. However, it is not sufficient on its own. And again, we need to, to get back to the intersectionality focus again and thinking about how can we make sure that everyone wins and how can we make sure that we provide equal opportunities to everyone, regardless of your gender, regardless of your race, uh, Indigenous status, disability status, regardless of any of those intersectionality factors, we want to make sure that everyone is, is being provided with equal opportunities. Hopefully this will lead to um, equal satisfaction in the workplace. And, and also, as we discussed in the article, you know, we do believe that um, having diversity does help. And, you know, we've seen that female representation, for example, on corporate boards, uh, or as well as hospital boards, it can result in more th thoughtful decision making as well as less corruption. And also, there have been many studies showing that women who are physicians, they actually provide high quality patient care. And in particular, they some research has found that it led to better quality of care for diabetes, lower rates of mortality, hospital readmissions, emergency department visits, etc. Um, so it's definitely needed, we need gender equity in medicine. Um, but not only do we need to think about gender, we need to think about intersectionality. And, and again, how can we make our teams more diverse? How can we make medicine more diverse? And hopefully increase patient care. How can women who are rising in their medical careers help others to do the same? If you look at the games that we have made, I think we would have to acknowledge, at least honor, the role of informal mentorship that, um, you know, as we look at our careers, key individuals that have supported our pathways. Absolutely. And uh, our mentors and our sponsors, and it's just a uh, real privilege and um, so wonderful to have the opportunities to have the sponsorship and mentorship um, from many leaders in the field. So, so that's definitely a real plus. Well, I've had great mentorship from both women and men that have helped me to advance. And so I couldn't agree more. Thank you, Ainsley and Andrea, for joining me today on the podcast. It's good to have you discuss this really important article. Thank you, Kristen. Thank you so much. I've been speaking with Dr. Ainsley Moore and Professor Andrea Trico. To read the article they've co-authored, visit cmaj.ca. Also, don't forget to subscribe to CMAJ Podcasts on SoundCloud or a podcast app, and let us know how we're doing by leaving a rating. I'm Dr. Kirsten Patrick, Executive Editor for CMAJ. Thank you for listening.